Um, hey, what we typically do here is we stand for the reading of God's Word, but we're working through the book of Esther. We're taking a break from the Gospel of Matthew. We're working through Esther, and then we're going to look at the book of Daniel throughout the summer months. So there's a lot of text for me to get through, so I'm going to have you stay seated, and I'm going to read through that text as we work through the sermon. But I do want to start by praying, so if you would, please pray with me before we dive in to the sermon. Uh, Father, we... Uh, I'm excited about this story because, one, it's just a fantastic story. Esther is just such an intriguing character within the scriptures. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be really uh, gracious with us this morning because this, at the same time, is just a really difficult story. There's a lot of nuances to it. In a lot of ways, we've heard the VeggieTale version of it, and it's just not the way that the Bible portrays Esther's story. So I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that we will learn from her. I pray that we would be able to identify ourselves with Esther in both the negative and the positive. And Lord, I pray that we would leave this place just our soul encouraged by the work that you do in even the best and the worst of characters throughout your scriptures. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1963, Bob Dylan wrote one of his most famous songs, The Times They Are a Changing. In it's become one of the best, biggest anthems in American history, and it's something that most artists have gone back and reprised over the course of American history. And NPR released an article on this song late last year, and one of the quotes within this article was by a guy by the name of Anthony DeCurtis. He's an editor at the Rolling Stone, and he talks about the influence this song had on the day and age in the 60s for that present culture. He quotes part of the song, so I want to read part of the lyric of the song, and I'm not going to try to do a Jimmy Fallon reprise here, so don't expect me to try to sing this. I hope you can just follow along with the flow of the song, but uh, here's the lyric, and then I'll dive into the curse's quote. The line, it is drawn, and the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast, and the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times, they are a-changing. And here's the Curtis's quote. And this is, this song came out during the Vietnam War, so just have that whole context in mind as you're hearing this quote. It was people who felt like they were in a battle, he says. And you know, you can go back to the, the times they are a-changing for that. The line has been drawn, the curse has been cast. You really felt you had to stand on one side or the other. It's kind of explaining a culture that seems pretty divided. A line has been drawn. You have to figure out which side you stand on that line, and there's really no ambiguity. There's no gray in between. You need to choose your side. And I think the age he describes sounds awfully familiar to our day and age, doesn't it? We live in an age of extremes. We feel that there are battles going on all over the place, all around us. I mean, there's so many cultural wars that are going on in our country present day. I mean, you don't have to look further than just the news this past week. I mean, you have Georgia versus Netflix and Disney because of legislation that's going on in their state. I mean, there, there are so many topics and issues 
that are so prevalent in this regard for our day and age. I mean, you have life rights, you have sexuality, you have racial and gender equality, you have religious liberty, and we feel like we have to choose a side on every single one of these things, but the reality is that they're all really hard, difficult topics. And it leaves you with the question, like, how do I live in this culture? Like, how do I, how do I relate to this place? Do I withdraw, become secluded? Do I... Just assimilate, fit in? Do I protest everything? Like, like what am I supposed to do? I mean, there, there's, we're presented with so many situations that are morally and spiritually ambiguous. So like, what do we do? Like, how are we supposed to navigate this life? Most importantly, like, what does it look like for me to be a Christian in this day and age? Where it seems like the culture is growing more and more obstinate towards the values and beliefs of the scriptures and my God. How, how am I to navigate this life? The times are changing, and it, in a lot of ways it feels very threatening. That's why we're looking at the book of Esther. So over the next four weeks, I think as we look at Esther's story, we're going to be able to identify ourselves in a lot of ways with the age that Esther lived in, the a lot of the compromises that she's really presented with. And in essence, I think we're going to be able to figure out, see a pattern, a course for how do we navigate living in the current day and age that we live. One pastor puts it like this, the book of Esther teaches us how to live in a world that's gone mad. So this morning, we're going to unpack the first two chapters of the book of Esther. And just as a forewarning, all right, we've been presented the VeggieTale version of the book of Esther. But it's a lot more Game of Thrones, all right? So I feel like in a lot of ways the first service, I was like the annoying kid that had a needle in his hand and was running through the park popping all the kids' balloons because that's what I feel like kind of happened, all right? We have this image of Esther in our head, and we have this high view of her, but then it comes to this story. We really unpack the scriptures, and we realize that's not really the story I thought it was. So... Here's, here's how I want us to break this passage down this morning. I want us first to realize that Esther's world was a much like our own. We'll look at that in the first chapter primarily, but then the first few verses in chapter 2. And the second, I want us to see that Esther and God's people are much a people like us. I think we'll find and identify with them in a lot of similar ways. And then last but not least, I, I think we're going to see that we have a God who is faithfully at work, even in the midst of a, a world that's in chaos, a people that are internally in chaos, and God is still faithfully at work. We'll see that in the last few verses of chapter 2. So I want to just read bits and pieces of this story, unpack it for us a little bit, and then we'll look at some application and then close. All right, so we're going to start in actually Esther chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 4, and I'll unpack chapter 1 for us after that. So here's the word of the Lord. Sometime later, when King Ashwaris, I can't say that word very well, so I'm going to say Xerxes. That's his other name. King Xerxes' rage had cooled down. He, resen- he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom 
so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, a king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. And this suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So here's, here's what's happened behind the, the background. Here's what's happened in chapter 1. Esther, the book of Esther starts off with this a massive party. All right, So King Xerxes gathers all of his officials for a 180-day, six-month party in his kingdom. And at the end of this six-month party, he calls upon the queen Vashti to come and show off her incredible beauty before all the people that are there partying with him. So here's the scene, all right? There's a 160-day, 60-month party that's going on. At the very end of this six-month party, he throws a feast. There's a feast for the women of his kingdom, and there's a feast for the men of the kingdom. Queen Vashti is hosting the women. King Xerxes is hosting all the men. And so what happens is over this seven-week period, he has basically gone and said there is an endless supply 24-7 of wine for anybody and everybody that participates in my seven-day feast. And so what, what's happening here is in chapter 1, we see that when the king was feeling good from the wine, obviously a little intoxicated, it's to, to say the least, right, is whenever he invites Vashti in. And chapter 1 says... That his command is to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown on. Some scholars say that she comes only with her crown. So imagine this, all right? You have a room full of intoxicated men after seven weeks of nonstop drinking. And the queen is called in to come into this room full of men intoxicated with nothing but her crown on. At the very most, a robe that's open in the front. That's what she's called into. Great husband, right? Great husband. And I think like a self-respecting woman, she turns him down. But this is a huge, huge no-no in the Persian Empire. And so, like any male does, King Xerxes calls a board meeting to figure out how do I deal with Queen Vashti and her decision. So here's what the guys come up with. They come up with the idea that they're going to strip her of her crown. They're going to strip her of her position within the royal empire. They're going to banish her, basically making her a widow while her husband is still alive. And they're going to open up this massive search for a new queen. And so the leaders are appointed across all 127 provinces that King Xerxes oversees to find the most beautiful virgin as the next candidate for the next queen. Literally over thousands of women are taken from their home and brought to the king's palace in order to be a potential candidate for the next queen. And so these girls go through months of beauty treatments for just one night, one night with the king, in order to try to hope and plea that they will be the one that he picks. And so here's the four outcomes that are available to these girls. The first one is that you can become a permanent concubine. You have your one night with the king, you don't strike his pleasure, and he banishes you for the rest of your life. Most of these girls no older than the age of 18. The second option, that's not a very good option, right? So the second option is just a little bit better, not, but not great. You're a favored concubine. And so the king enjoys his night with you, and he calls on you whenever he pleases. So 
at least you'll be able to have a sense of the world a little bit more than the first one, but still not a great option, right? The third one is that you might be one of the three to five of these thousand that is chosen to be a wife. You can bear children to the king and they can become heirs of his throne, potentially working within his palace, working on his legislative team, whatever it might be. The last option is the most favorable, favorable option, and that's that you become king, a queen. You are chosen, you are favored by the king. So you get the crown, you get the place of prominence, you are the next queen of the Persian Empire. Those are the four options available to all the women. All right? Now, like, we don't have six-month parties that we're throwing. We don't have endless amounts of wine. We don't experience some of the archaicness of this story, but I want to argue that a lot of the story is pretty similar to our day and age. I think we can relate with this society a lot more than what maybe stands out to us initially off the paper. All right, so consider King Xerxes. It takes him 180 days to show off his entire wealth and power. He has elaborate decorations throughout all of his palace. The Bible actually tells us he has golden couches and silver couches that he places throughout the palace. He goes and redoes all the streets and makes them into mosaics based off of these elaborate stones. Endless and endless supplies of wine. And all of this is in order to win over the favor of the people. So he's, he's in his third year as king. He's still trying to win over people to prove that he is a king that is worthy of authority and their submission. In a lot of ways, he's trying to do this because he's a king that wants to continue to go and expand his provinces. He wants to take over more and more people. And he has to have the favor of the people behind him in order to go do that. But it's also to serve as a warning. Here's what he's saying to everyone that participates in his entire feast, entire party. Look at the endless amount of resources at my disposal. There's nothing beyond my reach. Don't you ever consider crossing me. And so this is the pinnacle of manhood throughout the empire. People follow in step of the king. And in essence, a man was defined by his wealth and power. What about the ladies? What is Queen Vesti known by? What are all these 1,000 girls brought to the king for? Their beauty, their sensuality, their physical appearance. So here's the scene of chapter 2. It's basically a beauty pageant. It's the bachelor Persian edition. Like, that's exactly what's happening here, all right? You, they undergo extensive beauty treatments in order to be accepted by the king. So they have diet regimens, they have exercise regimens, they even have fragrant regimens, six-month fragrant regimens where they're going through oil treatments in order to have this intoxicating aroma whenever they enter into the king's bedroom. A woman was defined by her physical beauty and sexual appeal. One pastor puts it like this, a man's worth was determined by the size of his wallet and a woman's worth was determined by the size of her dress. But thank goodness we've progressed, right? <laughs> I say that in jest because we all can see, man, we live, we occupy, we inhabit a world that is drastically similar 
to that of King Xerxes. Our world is still dominant by wealth, power, status, and beauty. We feel it in the everyday life. I mean, our jobs, we're at cutthroat corporate ladders. We're encouraged to have full-time jobs with side hustles in order to have the bank accounts that we want or need. We have these free money cards called credit cards that we've racked up billions of dollars of debt on. Literally, if you take all of American debt and credit cards and you put it across every family household in the United States, it would be $8,000 per family. That is nuts. We have beauty regimens for both men and women. We have hair loss treatments, topical or oral, whichever one you want to take, right? There are beard transplants that men can get in our, in our culture. Women have them too. I mean, we have dietary regimens. We have Whole30. We have Weight Watchers. We have the Keto Diet. We have the Mediterranean Diet. We have diets where they will literally ship you food to your doorstep. We have extensive exercise regimens. We have spin classes. We have CrossFit classes. We have step classes. We have pound classes. We have swim teams. We have running groups. We have apps that we can count our calories. We have all of these things. And then we have ways that we can add new gifts to our regimen. We can go online and we can learn a new language in five minutes. King Xerxes' day and age is vastly similar to the age that we live in. The externals matter more than the internal. The color of your skin, your beauty, your money, your talents, even your connections are more important than your character. The world still clamors that in order to be accepted, you must endure its beauty regimens. And man, we may have superior technology, may have superior medicine, we may have even made some advancements in human rights, but our human heart has not changed much over the last few thousand years, has it? We inhabit a vastly similar day and age as King Xerxes. And this is the world that Esther inhabited. So here's the question. Like, how did God's people fare in this context? How did they do? Well, as you hear that list, and you think about your own life, I think as we're about to look at Esther's life, you're going to see that she's a person much like you and me as well as God's people. And a little forewarning again, like, I know that we've placed Esther on this huge pedestal, and that we're, gonna, we're about to read through her story here in the first couple of chapters. And just know, in some ways, Esther's not who we've made her up to be. All right? Verse 5 through 18 says this. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So right away, if you're a Jewish reader, Mordecai stands out to you, not because it's a Jewish name yet. It only becomes a Jewish name because of this very Mordecai. Before this, it's a Persian name. He's assimilated into the culture. The name is actually taken after the Persian god Marduk. He's completely assimilated into the Persian culture. 
He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. I can't help but get that idea of Zoolander when I hear that phrase, but maybe that's just me. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he, ex- he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He signed her seven handpicked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Second strike against Mordecai. Deny who you are. And every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening. All biblical scholars are confused of exactly what's happening here. They don't know if he's actually acting as a father figure to watch over her or to see if she's progressing and bringing favor to his name. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to the king, Xerxes, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch Shazgaz, keeper of the concubines. He never went to the king, she never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king Xerxes in the palace in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. So how did Esther and Mordecai do? No matter which scholar that you look at, whether it's a progressive scholar or a conservative scholar, all agree that Mordecai and Esther fail miserably in these first two chapters. I've already noted how Mordecai has, but... Consider Esther. I mean, everyone agrees that Esther has blown it. So some scholars love Vashti because she stands up to the king. She refuses his demand. She is a self-respecting woman and stands up to the man. But Esther is completely compliant. Esther listens to Haggai, the keeper of the women, which should make our skin crawl in and of itself, right? But she does it better than anybody else. I mean, the Bible says the young woman pleased him and gained his favor. 
She not only complies with the beauty treatments, but she masters them. She, co- she becomes an expert in them. The Bible says, hey, guy, accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that Esther was on. He assigned her seven female servants in order to help her progress and continue in these beauty treatments. He even gave her the best resources by transferring the harem that she was in in order that she may continue to grow and dominate all the other virgins in these beauty treatments that were going on. And she follows the recommendation of Haggai and how to please the king on her one night. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai suggested. She has bent entirely towards trying to please the sensual pleasures of the king. The conclusion is that Esther has basically become a Barbie doll. There's no resilience in her whatsoever. She's absolutely compliant. Then you have other scholars that critique Esther for her moral failings. Esther listens to her uncle and hides that she's a Jew. She hides who she is, that she's part of God's people. She breaks the dietary laws of her people, God's people. She has sex outside of marriage, not with somebody in her own people, but a Persian god. She's absolutely compliant. She compromises in every single way. Mike Cosper in his book on Esther says this, This is not a story about virtue and character, but about someone who has become acclimated to a godless world and has grown quite comfortable with it. Bursts our bubble, <laughs> right? This isn't the Veggie Tale version that we grew up with. But in some ways, like on, on the one hand, we feel for her, don't we? Like, what was she supposed to do? Right? Like, the odds were completely stacked against her. The outside pressure upon her was immense. I mean, she's a teenage girl that's being ripped out of her own house. I mean, imagine the fear of royal guards coming and taking you because of your physical beauty. She has her uncle's instructions to hide who she is, like the person of authority over her. Like, we feel for her, don't we? In a lot of ways, whether you're a male or you're a female, you see yourself in the story of Esther. Because we all can see in some ways that we ways that we've compromised ourselves. There's none of us that have held to our values and our beliefs to the exact same way that we would like to. We've all compromised. The Bible regularly describes humanity as clay. Isaiah 64, 8 says this, Yet, Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. And the message here is, yes, God is the authority over us, but we are also highly malleable. And so in a culture that is aggressive and assertive, we have to realize that we are extremely impressionable. And whether it's your work, trying to climb the corporate ladder, whether it's been in a friend group or trying to get your way into a friend group, whether it's been a 
person of interest. You can fill in the blank. We've all made moral compromises. We've all made spiritual compromises. We've all made cultural compromises. We relate with Esther's story. Now, if you're new and coming to the Bible, you may be coming with this idea that, man, like the Bible's filled with all these heroes that I'm to emulate. But whenever you really begin to open it up, you become really disappointed because you find just a bunch of people that are like you and me. And Esther is no exclusion. One pastor puts it like this. The challenge here is that we have been trained to read even the Bible as a catalog of heroes to emulate. Moses is the great model of leadership. Joshua is the ideal warrior, and we should dare to be a Daniel, as the old hymn exhorts. And maybe before we come in here this morning, we see Esther as the social justice worker that is high on the pedestal, right? This is a little odd when you actually read the narratives and discover that Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, Esther, and all the rest were ordinary sinners like the rest of us who had received an extraordinary calling. They fell short of that calling, and they too needed a Savior. A side of us is disappointed. I mean, it's Esther. It's like one of the most beloved female characters in all of the book of the Bible, right? Like, we love this character. But she morally compromised, spiritually compromised, culturally compromised, just as you and me do. So yeah, like, yeah, yes, in every way, like, she has failed. But don't skip over the goodness of the grace of God in Esther's life. Yeah, she starts terribly. But by the end, she's a completely different character. It's because the transformation of God in her life. She starts out a failure, but ends transformed. And this is like the central plot of all of the scriptures, right? Like this is the crux of what the whole story of the Bible is working towards. The message of the Bible is that God gives grace to those who do not earn it, who don't deserve it, or who even don't fully appreciate it once they get it. That's what we see throughout all the Bible. Yet, at the same time, just as God was patient with Esther, and he never left her and ultimately transformed her, that's exactly what he does with you and me. Through the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ, we start off terribly. We are all desperate sinners. But through the goodness of Jesus, our lives are transformed. Here's, here's like the good news for us. No matter how bad you fail or how deep your flaws, you cannot write yourself out of God's script. Like there's no plan B for you. It's like Jesus or bust. And the goodness of the scriptures is that there is grace. So Esther's world was much like our own. And despite the way that we may have heard of Esther, she's a person much like you and me, a person of compromise. But yet, like, what is amazing about the story of Esther is that God is still at work, 
even in the midst of failure, he uses that failure in order to accomplish his promises, to accomplish his plans. We see this in the last few verses. So read with me 19 through 23. It says this, When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while, she, while he raised her. And during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate the king Xerxes. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. And when the report was investigated and verified, both those men were hanged on the gallows. And this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Now, as you continue down the story of Esther, you realize that this is a really important event that happens throughout the story. Eventually, God uses it in order to save his people from extermination. But what's What's weird about it is that this is put into the historical records on behalf of Mordecai, but he's not publicly recognized yet. It's saved for later. But God uses it. He intertwines all these coincidences in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, what I want us to realize here, we've gone through the first two chapters of the book of Esther. And what I, maybe you've realized this already, maybe you haven't, but there's zero mention of God. He's not named once. He's not brought up at all. And it's not just like a first couple of chapters thing. You might be thinking, well, okay, later. There's ten chapters. Eventually he's going to show up. No, Esther's the only book in all of the Bible where God's not mentioned once. And the author goes at great lengths at certain times in order to leave God out. So Esther chapter 4, Mordecai and God's people go into a, a national fast. There's mourning that's going on. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And every other time that you see this throughout the scriptures, prayer is always accompanied by fasting and mourning. But the author leaves it out. Like, intentionally leaves it out. It's not like a, oh, I forgot that part. No, like, he purposefully leaves it out. So what in the world is going on? Like, why is the author of Esther leaving out certain opportunities to mention God in the way that he's at work here? Well, I think the reason is because he is showing us that God is faithfully at work, not in the extraordinary, but the ordinary circumstances of life. And in Israel's history up to this point, in any time of crisis, God has shown up extraordinarily. So you have Egypt and you have the ten plagues. Pretty extraordinary. You have the Exodus, and you have the parting of the Red Sea. Not something you see every day, right? Then you have the wilderness, and they're led by day, by smoke, and at night, by fire. The presence of God literally leading them throughout the wilderness. Extraordinary. Then they entered into the promised land, and what's the first thing that happened? Jericho. They literally only have instruments and they're marching around the city and the walls cave down and they take over the city without any weapons. Extraordinary. And then you get to the book of Esther and it's crickets. Right? 
In the book of Esther, it doesn't look like God is present at all. It looks more like a string of coincidences than it does divine intervention. I mean, it starts off with a drunk, arrogant king. You look at the plagues and you say, there's God. But whenever you see a drunken, arrogant king, you don't think, ah, there's God at work. Right? Esther just so happens to be beautiful. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot against the king's life. For some reason, his public recognition is put off chapters and only comes up at what seems like a most significant moment in order to save God's people from extermination. Just a string of coincidences. But the author of Esther is trying to portray that God is faithfully at work in the ordinary ways of everyday life. One, one author puts it like this, Karen Jobes, a commentator on Esther, says, Beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. So here's, here's, the, here's what's going on, all right? When the extra no, extraordinary goes on, we can see, yeah, God is present. But when God works in the ordinary, we think he's not there. But he is. He is. He's always present. He's always at work. So here's what that means for us. A lot of us sitting in this room today, God is working in the ordinary in your life today. And you don't recognize it, you don't realize it, you don't see it. Years down the road, you may be looking at something that, a predicament that you're in right now, directly in the face, and you're wondering, where are you, God? Yet he's working in the ordinary. He's showing himself faithful. He's working for your good. He's accomplishing your salvation. And it's all just behind the scenes. I mean, if you step back and look at your life, you can begin to see this at play in the way that God has ordained your days. I I grew up in a, a pastor's family. We moved five times before I was 13. And every single one of them were devastating, right? So, like, they all seemed to happen just as a school transition was about to happen for me. I felt integrated with my friends, and then it felt like my roots were uprooted, and then I was placed into a different place. I was angry with God. I was angry with my parents. It didn't even feel like God was at work behind the scenes. It just felt like he was actually working against me. But here I am 33 years later, and I can look back at all the ways that God has been intertwining the events of my life. One of the moves, my best friend basically gave up the faith. One of my moves, I was in a circle of friends that are now in and out of jail, and one of them died tragically at an event that I probably would have been at if I would have been in that same town. I moved, and I met my wife. In fact, before that, I moved, I was a part of some relationships with some ladies that were headed in a really bad situation, and I got uprooted out of that, moved to a different place, and then met my wife. I got introduced to some of the best spiritual mentors that I ever had in my high school years. 
ultimately ended up leading me to moving to the city of Louisville. I got plugged into Sojourn, and I've experienced the goodness of God's grace in ways that I never thought I would have ever experienced before. And in my time at Sojourn, God has so ordained and opened up doors to where it's led me to standing where I am right now. It felt like God was absent, but God was ordaining the events of my life to bring me exactly to where I am. And I think if you step back and you look at your own life, you can see the same thing happening in your life too. Listen, when God seems absent, he's not Even when God seems hidden, he's not abandoned you. God is accomplishing his purposes. He's even using your failures in order to fulfill his plans, just like he did with Queen Esther. What a gracious God. God is keeping his promises. He's working out your salvation in ways that you just don't even see. Not yet. So here's, here's our application, all right? Here's, here's the two things I want us to leave with, all right? First, don't miss how Esther points us to Jesus. Esther lived a compromised life, but Jesus lived a fully devoted life. He never compromised. He lived perfectly. He kept all of God's loss. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. Esther complied to save herself from death, but Jesus complied unto death in order that he might stand in our place. Esther was loved by the king because she was already beautiful, but Jesus loves us in spite of our flaws and makes us beautiful. He takes on our sin, he takes on our shame, he takes on our guilt, and gives us his perfect work. He makes us beautiful in the eyes of the king. He loves us in spite of our flaws. If you haven't turned to this Jesus yet, like, turn to him this morning. Like, what are you waiting for? We've heard about the world that we live in. We've heard about the assertiveness that it makes on our life. There's nobody that accepts you for your flaws like Jesus does. He's a God of immense grace. Turn to him this morning. Second, be faithful in the ordinary. We have a God who is faithfully working in the ordinary, and we should be too. One author puts it like this, and I, I just love the way that he framed it. I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and, necess and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so this is what I need now. The courage to face an ordinary day. An afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor. Without despair, the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life 
and the grace to know that even when I'm, I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that is enough. You have a God that does work in extraordinary ways, but his theme is working in the ordinary. So don't be let down by insignificance, by the mundane. Rather, be faithful in it, because that's who our God is. Let's be a people that model our God, not the broken figures of the Scriptures. Bob Dylan's song, The Times They Are Changing, begins like this, and it seems like a threat, all right? Come gather round, people, wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around you have grown, and accept, accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone, for the times they are a-changing. We live in a world that's gone mad. A world of polar extremes. We feel a lot of ways that God is absent, but he's not. He's with us, even in the midst of our compromises. He's patient with you. He doesn't give up. The message of Esther is that God's absence is never true. His silence is is not his absence. His hiddenness is not his abandonment. God is faithfully at work even when we cannot see his hand. That's who your God is. That's the God of Esther. She starts tragically, but she's completely transformed by the end of the story. And you should see your story in her too. Let's pray. Got it. We are in just the middle of an age where it seems so complicated to live. It's hard to know how we navigate and follow you faithfully. And if we're honest, it seems easier just to buy in to assimilate, to fit in. But that's not the good life. And I pray for us, people that have started off poorly, just as Esther, that you would continue to be patient with us, that you would remain faithful to us, and by the end of our life, we would see just the dramatic transformation that the gospel takes place in our life. May Esther's story be our story. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.